We'll take a Bible or turn on a Bible and join me in Genesis chapter 16. And uh, when Matt kind of reached out to uh, get a little help here, I'd asked him, um, as I looked at my schedule and saw that I was free on this Sunday, would it be appropriate for me uh, to share a Mother's Day message? And he said that it would be appropriate, and so I'm delighted to do that. Let me just first wish all of the mothers, uh, be that physical mothers or spiritual mothers, uh, a happy Mother's Day to you all. But we trust that the Lord would have something to share with all of us, even if you're not a mother or you are finished your mothering. Uh, in preparation for our time together, I did something that was quite interesting. I want to share with you some of my findings. I, I actually went on careeraddict.com, which is a, a, a website, and it gives all kind of information about careers and why people choose the careers that they choose and um, how satisfied they are with their jobs. And so what I did, I got to a little section, and it surveyed over 1,000 people, and it listed the top 30 jobs. And the criteria in terms of how you listed your satisfaction with the job was how demanding the job was, how strenuous the job was, and how satisfying the job was. And so I was just curious as to see what people said. And so I'm not going to give you all of the findings, but I'll just give you a few. And I'm wondering, as you think in your mind, what would be in those top 30? What would be in your top 30? And I'll tie it into why my surprise was such as I finished looking at the list. I'll just give you a few. Number 26 on the list was mountain guide. Mountain guide. I didn't expect to see that there. Number 24 on the list was stuntman. A stuntman. Number 19 on the list was an astronaut. Number 14 on the list was an airplane pilot. Number 18 on the list was a police officer. And again, this was people who wanted demanding, strenuous jobs for the purpose of being satisfied as a result of accomplishing their job. Number 15, this was odd, was landmine remover. Wow is right. What happens if you get that wrong, right? Number 13 on the list was brick mason. Number 12 on the list was prison warden. And that takes an interesting kind of person, right? Prison warden. Number 11 on the list was mortician. Number five on the list was cell tower climber. Go figure. Number seven was a firefighter. Number four, I thought this interesting, was Alaskan crab fisherman. And how many of you can guess what number one was? Military. Number one was military. Fascinating. I, I, I read stuff like that and just thought that was fascinating. But as I thought about it, it gave some insight, at least into these 2,000 people that took the survey, on what they deemed as satisfying and rewarding and strenuous work. And as I thought about that, particularly in light of even today, I thought that at least in the top 10 should have been motherhood. As you think about the strenuous nature of motherhood, as you think about the hard work of motherhood, as you think about the, 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 the laboring of, of motherhood, and not just that, but on the other side of it, the rewarding aspect of motherhood, I thought that at least maybe one person would have put that there, but they didn't. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. We should be surprised by that because the world really doesn't appreciate motherhood. 
As a matter of fact, I think in the way that things go these days, we're moving further and further away from the idea of even acknowledging mothers to be the champions that they actually are. And some people even perceive motherhood to be just something that, that we could just do it out if we can, that, 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 that that's just something for a woman not even to think about as she gets older. Little girls are not raised these days to even be considering that a goal in life would be, if the will of the Lord says so, to be a mother, to be a wife and a mother, let alone have multiple children, because after all, you have a life to live and you don't want children to get into way. So it's not surprising then that we didn't find that in the list. The sad part about it, at least in my estimation, is that I think even some of that understanding has made its way into the church. And it shouldn't be that way because of all the people, we understand the great gift that God has given to humanity in the gift of motherhood. And I recognize on a day like this that, that moms come and you, you carry all kind of excitement maybe because your children are making you feel very special today. Why is it just one day in a year? I'm not sure why that is, but still nonetheless, you come with all kind of excitement because your children are making you feel special. But what I want to do is I want to encourage you in God's word. Uh, if you're a mom here this morning and maybe you're struggling a bit or, or maybe you're tired, maybe you're exhausted and, 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 and you come carrying some burdens and maybe you have burdens that you've never even shared with anybody else, then I want to take us to God's word and encourage you. And I hope that as we look at what we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 6, that not just moms are going to be encouraged, but that we're going to turn our eyes on a God who sees. And this God is not just the God of struggling mothers. This is the God of all of us. And so therefore, all of us can be encouraged. So if your Bibles are open, join me in Genesis chapter 16. Now, as we think about mothers to focus on, if you were just to survey your Rolodex in your mind of, 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 of famous mothers in the Bible, this particular person that we're going to look at in this text is probably not the person that comes to your mind. As you think about mothers, even in now as you're thinking about it from the biblical perspective, you would probably be thinking about Eve. You could think about Sarah. You might even be thinking about uh, obviously, uh, you go through the, the, the scriptures and you, and you think about Mary. There's a whole host of famous mothers in the Bible. But let me just ask you, how many of you guys have ever thought of Hagar as a famous mother in the Bible? Probably not. I want to change that a little bit. And it's not so much about Hagar as it is about the God who meets Hagar. And the God who meets Hagar is a God who is available to us all and a God who will bring great encouragement to our hearts, a God who will, in fact, strengthen us and give us hope, and particularly for mothers who are struggling today, a God who can bring great encouragement to your own heart. So I want us just to follow a simple outline. Some of you guys have that notes in your hand, and I'm going to give us three headings. You see that there. You're going to follow along there. I want us to first notice the harsh reality of a hard life, the harsh reality of a hard life. One of the many reasons, and there are many reasons that I love the Bible, is that the Bible does not try to sanitize life. Maybe you guys have ever just read that, and the Bible just speaks in a very earthy way. It doesn't try to whitewash the way that life really is outside of the garden. 
Uh, the, the, the Bible doesn't try to clean up its heroes. The Bible presents life in the way that it is because of its fallenness, and the Bible presents life the way that it is in the way that we experience it. Life is messy. How many of you guys would agree with that? It is for me. I got a hearty amen over here, right? Life is messy because the world is broken and the world is fallen. And we know that God has intervened and saved us by his grace, but he has not taken us out of a fallen world. And even though we're still followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that we aren't subject to the vicissitudes of life just like everybody else. And on a day like this, I would imagine that some moms come carrying burdens. Some moms come with deep affliction. Some moms come experiencing the harshness of a messy and broken life. And I want to introduce you to someone like that. So your Bible's open. Look with me at Genesis 16, verse 1. I want to introduce you to Hagar. We find several things about her life that are worth noting. First of all, I want you just to notice that she is a slave. She is a slave. Look at verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. And so Sarai uh, said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Verse 3, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. Now, the NASB translate that maid, the idea is servant. She is basically a slave. Um, we read back, and you guys can check this on your own, back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 16, she was given to Sarai from Pharaoh as a result of Abraham's or Abram's lies, right? And he wanted to reward, and so um, Hagar was one of the ones that was given from Egypt as she became uh, Sarai's maid. In other words, she's a slave. She has absolutely no rights. She, she, she's been taken from her home. She's been given to this woman. She's in a foreign land, and she has no rights. In essence, she's there simply to serve Sarai at Sarai's beckoning. Whatever Sarai wants her to do, she has to do. She has no rights. She has no personal agency. This is who she is. This is her life. There's no expectation for anything to change. Whatever Sarai tells her to do, Hagar actually has to do it. She's away from home. The idea would be probably she's a very young woman, given as a maid, given as a servant. So here's this young girl in a foreign land as a servant. We notice that she's forced to be a surrogate wife. Now, this was kind of common in the ancient Near East, but still, you got to understand she had certain feelings. She, 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 she doesn't want to necessarily be Abram's wife, not in this sense. In this sense, she's a wife only for the sole purpose to bear children. And you got to think about how that made her feel. It's not like Abram is wooing her and loving her. Sarai has a problem, and Sarai tries to take uh, things into her own hand and comes up with this plan and basically tells Hagar to go in to her husband. She's forced to be a surrogate wife. And then we'll notice later on down in the text 
that as she gets pregnant, she becomes persecuted by the one who's actually in charge of her. Look at verse 4 in your Bibles. He, that is Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Now, this is not doing very well for Hagar. Hagar is not in the right here. Hagar is becoming puffed up with pride. She's now pregnant. Sarai couldn't get pregnant. And so now she's starting feeling a certain way about Sarai. But verse 5 says, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but she saw that she had conceived. I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, if we had time, we can talk about what just transpired there, right? It was Sarai's idea to begin with, and then she got pregnant. Now Sarai's upset that she actually got pregnant. Verse 6, but Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power to do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai, notice this, treated her harshly treated her harshly, put her under affliction, made life miserable for her. And there was nothing that she could do about it. And things, according to the text, got so bad that she ran away. Now here she is. Just think about that for a moment. Here she is. She's pregnant. She's been given to a man. He doesn't really care about her. She's still under the authority of Sarai, who now is afflicting her, and she seems as though she has no other choice than to run away. And she leaves. And understand that she doesn't have anything. There's no possessions. There was no gift given to her to leave. She leaves as a young, pregnant woman. That's a hard life. Here's a pregnant slave, a runaway slave, no place to go, no means of support. There were no shelters, you guys, that she could go to. There was no government assistance that could help her. She's in the most vulnerable place that a woman could be in given the times. She's out by herself. And there she is. Maybe somebody here this morning, mother or not, can relate to her. Can relate to just being in a space where you feel vulnerable being in a space where the afflictions of life have caused you to think about running away. And there are different ways, brothers and sisters, to run away than actually physically running away. There are ways of escape the harshness of life. We, we can run away into alcoholism and, and numbing our pain. We, we can run away to numbing our pain on social media. We can run away in all kinds of ways when we feel the weight of living in the broken world, when we feel the weight of having no agency, when we feel the, the weight of just the sin of the world crashing down, when you feel the weight as, as a mom that, that nobody really understands, when you're trying to bear up under the pressure of raising all of these kids and, and you don't feel like your husband fully understands, you don't feel like your, your community fully understands, and you might even not feel like your church even understands. Having all of the expectations to be that perfect woman, to be that perfect wife and that perfect mother and that perfect homeschooler, 
to have everything in order, a clean house and, and happy and, and healthy children and, and smart children that get all A's and, and godly children and all the different things that can come down upon a mom and then have the expectation to come and be happy and how are you doing? I'm fine. Everything is great because nobody wants to be that, 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 that mother that complains. Maybe there might be somebody like that. And you don't have to be a mom to feel that way. I have been pastoring for a very long time. One of the challenges in pastoring is to really get people to be honest about where they are. We have a tendency, at least in the tradition of, of the church that I attend, where we do a lot of conversation before the service and you hear people talking. And, 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 and most times, how are you doing, brother? Blessed in the Lord. How are you doing, sister? Wonderful. How's things going? Great. When in fact, the world oftentimes is crashing underneath them. They're hurting. They're in pain. They feel like fleeing. If that's you this morning, and you can relate to this woman, there's hope for you. But it begins by just recognizing where you are. It begins by just being honest with yourself. It begins by just coming to grips with how you're feeling. The good news is, dear mom or dear sister or dear brother, the good news is that there is a God who cares. And that leads us to our second heading. And so we move from the harshness of a hard life to a hopeful encounter with a gracious God. A hopeful encounter with a gracious God. God has not overlooked the affliction of Hagar, and he intervenes in order to reveal himself to her and to give her hope in the midst of her despair. Now, this pregnant woman is is in the barrenness of the wilderness, and yet she encounters the living God. And as we turn here, I want to just show you four actions of God under this heading, four actions of God, which are lifelines to every struggling mother and every struggling believer for that matter. So first of all, we want to see a God who finds us in our weariness, a God who finds us in our weariness. Look at verse 7. Notice what it says there. Now the angel of the Lord, mark this down, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. And this is the first time in the Bible, in the history of the Bible, that we find this individual, the servant or the angel of the Lord. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave the details of that to, to Dr. Matt Jones to try to help you figure out whether that's a theophany or a Christophany or is it Gabriel or is it just simple angel. So you guys ask him next week. Uh, <laughs> The pastor kid didn't know. And uh, just as an aside, I call your pastor all the time, you guys. 
And you guys have been sitting under his ministry long enough to know you can ask Pastor Matt a question and he'll say, I'll get right back to you. In 10 minutes, he'll send you like 15 pages, right? <laughs> so he is my go-to resource. But this individual, and it may be a Christophany, a, a, a pre-incarnate uh, manifestation of Christ. It may be a theophany or it may just be an angel dispatched on God's behalf. Whoever it is, he comes from God and he finds Hagar. It's little words like that that mean a whole lot in the Bible, brothers and sisters. Here she is in the wilderness, barren by herself, and God finds her. God initiates the contact, as it were. She's not looking for God, but God sees her. God knows her. God finds her right where she is. She doesn't have to try to clean herself up first. She doesn't have to try to get right with God first. She just is where she is, and the text says God finds her. And I love the questions that he asks her, because clearly he's not asking her for his own information, right? He obviously knows who she is. He knows where she is. He knows where she's come from. But notice it. Verse 8, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? When you read questions like that, particularly in the Old Testament, again, it's not for information's sake. It, th those questions come as an opportunity to engage with God. You might be thinking, like, I heard that question before. That's the question that God asked Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. When God came and they were running away from God, hiding from God. God came and said, Adam, you guys, where are you? Did God not know where Adam was? Of course God knew where Adam was. It wasn't for God's information, but it was an opportunity, an invitation for Adam to recognize where he was, that he wasn't where God wanted him to be, and to return from God. You might be thinking of 1 Kings, I think it's 19. You guys remember Elisha, and he had the great victory, and then Jezebel got after him, and he fled for a couple of days. And when God met him, do anybody remember what God said to him? Elisha, what are you doing here? Not because God didn't know what he was doing there, but he was inviting Elijah to return to him. This question here is a question of grace. It's a question of mercy. It's a question of God saying to Hagar that I have found you, I'm here. Where are you trying to go? What you're seeking, I am he. Running away, brothers and sisters, doesn't fix anything. And let somebody say, amen. What fixes our problems is a fresh vision of God. What fixes our problems is us to turn, even in the midst of trying circumstances, to turn to the living and true God who is there, a God who meets us in the difficulties of our circumstances and says, where are you going? Where have you come from? Can I encourage a struggling mother this morning? And you might be in the process of running away from your difficulties, from your problems, from your challenges, from your affliction. God is here. 
God is near you and God is saying to you, where are you going and where have you come from? And it is an invitation to return back to him. God is a God who finds us in the midst of our affliction. Secondly, God is a God who promises to us when we are hopeless. Notice the conversation continues. In verse 8, he said, I'll drop down to verse 9. He says he's gonna, she's going to return to the mistress and submit herself to her authority. And then in verse 10, Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your seed so that they will be too many to count. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. You see the promise there? The promise is, is that you're going to have a son, and I'm going to bless him. What a promise. What a promise. He sends her back. Yeah, think about this. He sends her back to her affliction, but he doesn't send her back empty-handed. He sends her back to her current circumstances. So that is to say that God doesn't always change our circumstances, but God means to give us promises. It means to give us promises to meet us where we are so that we can endure the circumstances that we're under. So she's got to go back. Now, if the truth be told, when you read that, you might be a little disappointed. Like, God, how in the world could you tell her to go back and submit yourself to the authority of your mistress, understanding the way that Sarai is feeling about her. Nothing has changed in that sense. And yet God says, I have set up the authority structure, so go back. Mothers, you can't give the kids back. You have to go back, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. You have to go back mentally. You have to go back psychologically. You have to go back emotionally. You have to be there. And what God wants to do is remind you of promises that he's given to you. Promises that you can stand on. Promises that you can cling to. Promises that will embolden you. Promises that will help you. That's why it's so important, brothers and sisters, to know the promises of the Bible. There are many that we could rehearse here. A few come to my mind. The promise like 2 Corinthians 12, 9, you guys know it really well. The Apostle Paul has a thorn in his flesh. He prays to God to take it away three times. He prayed, Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away, and God doesn't take it away. God doesn't change Paul's circumstances, but he gives him a promise. And the promise is that my grace is sufficient, for my power is perfected in your 
weakness. That's not just a promise for the Apostle Paul. That's a promise for all believers, that he doesn't always take away the things that cause us difficulties, the things that burden us down. He doesn't always remove those things, but he tells us that in the midst of it, as we stay in it for his glory, that his grace will in fact be sufficient. Because when you feel you're most weak, he is strong. There's a perfecting work of God's grace in your life when you know yourself to be at the end of your own strength. What about the promise in Hebrews 13:5? It comes on the midst of the writer to, to, to the Hebrews saying, don't worry about money. And sometimes that's a huge burden for mothers. How, how are we going to provide? How, how are we going to get by it? I'm, I'm trusting God to provide for my husband, or, or maybe you're a single mom, and, 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 and there's nobody there to help you, and the bills are piling up. And the promise of God there is, is that God has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, that God will be with you. And if God will be with you, ultimately, that's all that matters. How about the promise, and you all know it, of Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those, right, who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that good that he causes all things to work together is told to us in the next verse, in verse 29, that we would be conformed into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so we can view our difficulties from the lens that God is using that to make us more like Jesus Christ in thought, word, and in deed. God gives us promises, brothers and sisters, and we have to cling to them. God is the God who finds. God is the God who promises. Thirdly, God is the God who hears when nobody else is listening. God is the God who hears when nobody else is listening. Look at the text again, verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. And the Hebrew Ishmael simply means God hears. Now you got to think about that, right? Why, why God hears Ishmael, right? Yeah, so think about what, what's going to happen. She's going to go back, and the text even tells they went back, and she had the baby, and Abraham called him Ishmael. And can you just imagine every single time Hagar called her son by name, what is she saying? God hears me. God hears me, right? In the midst of submitting still under the affliction of Sarai, all she had to do was just call Ishmael, Ishmael, Ishmael. And every single time she is saying, God hears me. That's why God said his name shall be called Ishmael. It's not just for Ishmael, for who he would be, but it's for Hagar, so she would know always that no matter what was going on in her life, there's a God who's listening, a God who hears even though she felt unheard by everyone else. Dear sisters, God hears you. He hears your cries. He hears your burdens. He's listening to you, dear moms, when nobody else is listening. When the kids aren't listening, <laughs> he hears you. 
He hears you when you are trying to hold it all together only long enough to go into your own closet and to break down in tears under the weight of the pressure of trying to hold it all together. He hears you. He's listening. That's the kind of God that he is. And then fourthly, he's not only a God who finds, he's not only a God who promises, he's not only a, a God who listens and hears, but he is a God who sees. You guys see it there in the text? Look back at your Bible. After describing what Ishmael is going to be, he's going to be a wild donkey of the man. The Israelites were, were, were individuals who were wild. It's a whole history to that. But he goes on in verse 13. He says, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. It's a little debate in terms of how that should be translated there, that, that, that El Roi. It could be you are a God who sees or you are a God who is seen. It may be both, leaning in both directions. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? She memorializes the experience by giving God a name. And which, by the way, you guys, she is the only person in the Old Testament to ever give God a name. It's your homework to go try to find someone else. Hagar is the only one in the Old Testament who ever named God. And the name that she memorializes this encounter with is the God who sees, or the God who sees me. And I like the way that the ESV translates the sentence here. It translates the sentence this way. You are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Yes, see what God is doing with her. He's encouraging her. He's putting strength back into her. How beautiful is that? She now not only is a woman who is heard, she now is a woman who is seen. And when I think of being seen, I don't think of being seen. I think of being seen. What does that mean? It means that people can be looking at you and not see you. You could be sitting in a room of, of 100 or 500 people, right, and everybody's eyes can be on you, but you still not feel seen. I think the idea here of being seen is being understood. Illustration that comes to my mind is, yes, the Avatar movies. Anybody remember the Avatar movie, whatever, right? And when they really connected with one another, they say, I see you. I like that, actually. I see you. In other words, I get you, right? I understand you. Right? So the young people say, I feel you. <laughs> She's seen by God. Dear mothers, this is the God of the Bible who sees you right where you are, who understands every single thing that you are going through, who comes to affirm you and recognize you and, and acknowledge you in your creaturely personhood when so many others don't. 
It is so easy, is it not, for mothers, not that I know from experience, but from talking to my own wife, who is the mother of five, and now the grandmother of two, to have your whole identity basically taken away and be minimized into that one thing that you do for everybody else. There's nothing wrong with motherhood, but that's not the totality of who you are as a woman, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's so easy for everyone else just to see you through that sliver. But God sees you for who you are, the totality of who you are. Just as God saw her, he sees you. So Hagar meets God through the angel of the Lord, the God who finds her, the God who promises, the God who hears, the God who sees, and then the God who sends her back. Your Bibles are still open. Look again. Therefore, there was a well there. He named the well Be'er, Le'ai, Ro'ai. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now that sounds like the end of the story, right? It's just that, that's it. She goes back, she bears a son, and we don't find out anything else. But that's not quite the end of the story, which leads us to our third and final heading. And then we'll draw our time to a close. We move then now, lastly, to the saving rescue of the sovereign Lord. Now, in order to do that, you've got to turn over a few chapters, so go with me to chapter 21. Clearly, there's a long period of time. The best that we could probably put it together is maybe 14 to 16 years that Hagar is there back under the authority of Sarai. Ishmael is growing up there, but we pick up the story in chapter 21, and we find something else going, God being faithful to Sarah now and giving Sarah a son, and this is the son of promise. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old and God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100, right? We, we read before he was 75, so he's on 100 years old uh, when, when Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Everything is happy. Everything is wonderful. The son of promise has been born. The question is, what about Hagar? And we pick that up in verse 9. Notice there. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. That idea of mocking is this idea of, of, of treating, treating Isaac in a bad way. Now, at this point, Mama Bear comes out, and Mama Bear is not happy. Verse 10, therefore she, that is Sarah, said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, 
for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. So once again, he's distressed that he's going to have to send Hagar and the son out, but he doesn't care about Hagar. He cares about his son. So no filial affection Abraham has for Hagar even after all of these years. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because, the lad, because of the lad and your maid, wherever Sarah tells you to listen to her, for though Isaac your descending shall be named, or through Isaac your descendant shall be named, and of the son of the maid, I will make a great nation also because he is your seed. So verse 14, Abraham rose up early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water. Skin of water maybe was about five to seven gallons of water. He gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder. That is the skins of water she put on her shoulder. And she grabbed the boy and was sent away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Here she is again, you guys. Do you see the picture? She's out again, cast out again, now having a boy. He's probably maybe 14, 15, maybe 16 years of age. All she has is a jug of water, and they're sent out. She finds herself in the same position. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite of him, about a bow shot away, for she said, do not let me see the boy die. And sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. There's so much we can say about that, right? Because if you remember the promise that God gave to her, the promise that God gave to her is like, no, 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 your boy is going to be a what? A great nation. But she's clearly forgotten the promise. She's, freely, for, she's clearly forgotten the God who hears. She's clearly forgotten the God who sees. She's clearly forgotten the God who finds. And if the truth be told, is that not us sometimes in the midst of our difficulties? Or am I the only one? that I've forgotten, right? That's why the Bible over and over says just, just put Ebenezer stones all over your house, right? When God intervenes in your life, write it down, mark it down, put a pillar right in the middle of your living room because harder times are going to come and the tendency in our flesh is to forget what God has done for us in the past and she has forgotten. She thinks the boy is going to die, and she doesn't want to see it, and she goes and sits next to a tree, and she doesn't want to see it. She's forgotten everything that happened 16 years ago. Maybe that might be you, Mom. Maybe that might be you. That you've forgotten how God intervened in your life in his grace and his mercy. How God rescued one of your children when he or she was three. And now something else is going on in your child, and you're despairing. You're lamenting. You're holding on by a thread. And the good news is, is that the same God that met you before is the same God that will meet you now. Watch what happens. Look at verse 17. God heard the lad crying, 
And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, which, by the way, here's another one of those things, and I'm giving you some of these tips, guys, for jeopardy's sake. Hagar is the only woman that God ever calls by name, that shows up and calls her by name. She's the only woman that ever names God, and she's the only woman that God ever names by calling her. I don't know what to do with that, but that's pretty cool. It's Hagar, and she's not even a Jew. God calls her by name, Hagar, and he reminds her. Hagar, what is the matter? <laughs> Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with the water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Do you guys see it? The same God showed up once again. He committed himself for the first time when he found her, and he was committed to her until the end. He was faithful to his promises. And dear sisters, dear mothers, dear brothers, this same God is faithful to us. Do you believe that this morning? Are you trusting in this God? that he is the one who will find you. And if you are a believer, he has already found you in grace, amen? He has found you in sovereign grace. When we were not looking for him, amen, he initiated to find us, and he saved us through the shed blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He drew us with the cords of love and made a covenant with us and gave us the promise, did he not, that he would never leave us nor forsake us that he would bring us all to way to heaven, amen? That the good work that he began in us, he will complete it against that day. He will be faithful to bring all of us to eternal glory. And he's a God who hears us, amen? He's pledged himself always to hear us, no matter where we are, no matter where we're going, no matter what we're going through, he is a God who listens. And we can cry out to him, and he listens. He hears. In fact, he's given us his own spirit, has he not? That even when we don't know how to pray, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit takes those utterances that can't even be articulated, and he brings them up to God. And his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at his right hand praying for us. So even when you can't articulate it, what you're feeling, God is listening. And he sees us, doesn't he? There's nothing hidden from his sight. He knows, dear mom, right where you are. He knows right where your children are. He knows right where your husband is. He knows it all. He knows what your pain is. He's pledged himself to be there always. 
and he will bring all of it to fruition because he's committed himself to us in Christ. The question is, will we trust in him? Will you believe upon him? Will you hear him calling your name? Maybe you're here this morning and mother or not mother, young or old, male or female, and you find yourself in a place of brokenness, you find yourself in a place of isolation, you find yourself in a place of barrenness, you find yourself in a place of no hope. Can I encourage you, there's hope in the gospel. That this God created you for his own glory. This God has sustained you for his own glory. And although you have fled from him, like Hagar fled, although you are away from him, in his mercy and in his grace, he has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to find you and to provide for you a remedy for your isolation, which is caused by your sin and your rebellion of your own heart through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world to live a life that we could not live, to fully obey the law completely in thought, word, and deed, and then die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, taking on himself the punishment that our sins deserved and was raised on the third day, ascended back to heaven where he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords and invites all in their lostness and in their brokenness to come to him. What are you to do? Acknowledge where you are. Repent, turning from your lostness and receiving the free offer of forgiveness in him. And if you will, he will receive you unto yourself. And we're going to come in a moment to our communion time. And I ask that you just join me in a word of prayer as we think about what it costs God to find us and to make covenant promises to us, to encourage us and draw us to himself. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We come now, Lord God, to remember the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, our Father, that you would grant us the ability to be honest with you, to recognize right where we are. We pray that these words that we have seen in your word would be a source of encouragement to us to turn to the God who sees, the God who finds, the God who hears, and turn to the God who promises. So, Lord God, we pray that you would nourish our faith, even from the elements that we will partake of by faith, encouraging us, Lord God, to cast ourselves upon your mercy, to be reminded of the covenant blessings that we have as a result of the body given for us in Christ and the blood shed for us by Christ. We love you, Lord. We bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.